Right. Well, we started this new series last week called Redeeming Ruth, and we're just walking through the book of Ruth, looking at our God and how he shows up in different aspects of our life. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip open. We're going to be in the second half of Ruth chapter 1 tonight. And tonight we're going to be talking about where is God in my suffering? And um, as I was kind of thinking through this and preparing for tonight, I I was um, reminded of um, something that happened in our in the news just a couple months back. I don't know if you guys remember, probably like back in the fall, October, November, there was a pastor uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana, who um, he, he had his wife, his, his pregnant wife, and uh, they already had one child together, was assaulted and killed in their home. Anybody else, do you guys remember this story on the news? Um, just kind of a random home invasion and um, just a really, really tragic set of events. And and we actually know some people who are who know them, um, and so we kind of had you know some insight there to the story and everything. But what really spoke to me is they were walking through. You know, it took several weeks to kind of find the the perpetrators and and to work through this this case. Um, but in the midst of it, the response of the husband, the response of the father, the father-in-law uh, of the of the father of the the, the woman, just really struck me um, as as a Christian and how I would respond if something like that happened to my wife and my child. And so I have a little clip here of an interview of the, of the son and of the father-in-law where they're just talking a little bit. I'm gonna sh- we're going to watch this, then I'll share a little bit more uh, of some insights from this. Let's go ahead and play that. Forgiveness is really interesting in that it's not a, it's not a feeling. And I feel like that, that if you wait to, to feel like you're ready to forgive, then you're never really going to be able to forgive. Because when someone inflicts pain on you or, or a, a, an offense this grave, um, I, don't, I don't feel like you ever feel like forgiving. Um, but, you know, one of the things I learned from Amanda and, and that, that we really learn as we walk with Jesus is that if we were to make all of our decisions based on emotions, then we yeah. would live a miserable life. This world would be even worse than what it is right now. And so although we don't feel like forgiving, what mm-hmm. we feel like is, is anger and hatred and rage and loneliness and confusion. We choose to forgive. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is about forgiveness is it's a, it's a daily decision. We're going to have to wake up every single day and face that decision over and over and over for the rest of our lives. And I just don't, I don't want to live my life going down the path of bitterness because it will destroy my soul and it will destroy everybody around me if I choose that. And so, so today I choose forgiveness and I pray that tomorrow I can wake up and choose forgiveness by the power of Jesus Christ. You know, one of, the, one of the things about Jesus is when, when they were inflicting way more pain than any of us could imagine on him on the cross, he looked out and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And so that spirit lives in us. And we're just praying that God, sure. um, through his, his, his spirit, would help us in that. Now, the, the pain, the suffering that this family went through in that event I think it's hard for us, to, many of us, to even comprehend that level of self. Like, I know I can't. Like, I haven't experienced anything to that degree. Um, but I love their, the combination there of their brutal honesty of, you know what, it does hurt, and I am angry, and it is hard, and it's a lot to process. But on the flip side of that, not only being honest about where their heart is, but then also acknowledging that what they need is the help of the Holy Spirit leading them to forgive on a daily basis. 
right? And that, how those two things get wed together as we're following Christ, as they're following Christ. And, and what I think, and like I said, we know some people who know this family, both the father and the son, or the son-in-law, and, and, and they've, they've said, you know, this, this is legit. Like, they're not just putting on a show here. Like, this is really, this is really who they are. This is really how they feel. This is how they function. And um, I think that's what suffering does, when, when suffering hits our life, whether it be something to this extreme or something to a smaller extent, suffering shows us and shows everyone around us what we really believe, what we really love, who we really are. Um, it just brings all that to the surface. And we're going to see that here tonight in Ruth. And this is the first thing in your notes there. What I want you to see tonight is this. Suffering reveals the real me and my real need. Suffering reveals the real me and my real need. And we see that here with, with the Blackburns, and we, we're going to see that here in, in Ruth's family tonight. So let's pick up in verse 7 of chapter 1. You can follow along with me. It says, talk, start talking about Naomi here. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. Or, or I'm sorry, as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So the first thing we see here from Naomi and Ruth and Orpah is in suffering, God shows me what I truly believe. In suffering, in the midst of suffering, God shows me what it is I really believe about him, about my life. And for here for Naomi, we see, so just kind of recap just a little bit of last week, you know, Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons, leave Bethlehem, go to Moab. And as soon as they get there, Elimelech dies, the husband. And then a couple years later, the sons die. And so now you've got Naomi left, this widow, no husband, no son. She's got these two daughters-in-law who don't have any husbands now. And I mean, they have nothing. They're just destitute. And so she finally decides, okay, I'm done with Moab. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to head back to where God is, right? She heard that God was working in the fields again at Bethlehem. The famine was over. God had returned to his people. God was blessing again. And, and she knows that in Moab, there's nothing for her, right? She has no family there. She has no friends there. She has no money. She has, no, she has nothing. In Bethlehem, at least there's hope. There's hope to rekindle friendships. There's hope of family and, and care and concern for her. And so she's like, I'm, getting, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm she, she takes that repentant posture and she turns from Moab. She turns from their waywardness and their rebellion against God's discipline. And she turns and she goes back towards Bethlehem. And it shows that not only is she repentant in her actions, but we're going to see that she's also repentant in her heart. And the key to all this is she sees that God is working over here, and so she's going to go where God is and get in on that. She wants to be back with him. So she gets up and she goes, well, her daughters-in-law get up and they start following her to Bethlehem, right? So they got these three ladies now, they're, they're trekking it out of Moab, and finally, I guess Naomi kind of comes to it, and she's like, whoa, 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 what are you guys doing? <laughs> and she urges her daughters-in-law, she's like, don't come with me, don't go to Bethlehem, like, you need to go back to Moab. Go back to your families and, and, and go back. Like that was kind of customary in that day. If, if, if for, the, for the women, if, if, they were to be, if they were married off and then the husband died and they had no kids and they had nobody else in the family to take care of them, they usually went back to their home of origin. And they would live with their mothers and their fathers until they could find another husband or find another way to be. And, and so she was like, 
don't come with me. Like, go back to your families. And, 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 and she even, you know, has, there's hope, she says, there for you. In Bethlehem, you have nothing. You don't know anybody there. It's a foreign land, foreign people. Like, I, it's just, just go back to your families in Moab. Nothing good awaits you in Bethlehem. And then she does something really interesting. She, she says, may the Lord, and she actually starts to pray for these two ladies. It's really what she's doing here, right? And so what's interesting about this is this. First of all, Naomi prays to Yahweh to bless these women as they return to Moab, okay? A couple pieces of that. First of all, this shows that she still has a strong belief in Yahweh, right? This God that she has been, she's been brought up to worship and to love and to follow that from her reckoning has not done much for her over the last several years, right? She's been in a pretty bad place. She went through a lot of suffering, yet she still believes. She still believes that he is real, that he is true, that he is her God. And, and so then she also believes that not only is he her God, but he's God over everything, everywhere. You see, in the ancient Near East during this time, the customary belief of the people was that gods were regional gods. Okay? So this god, the god of Moab, was Chemosh, right? And so Chemosh was god over this region of land and the people that lived within that region. And then over here in this region, they'd have a different god over their people, okay? And so from their perspective, Yahweh was the god of Israel. He was god over Judah, but not anywhere else. But Naomi here, by praying that Yahweh would bless these women in Moab with their families of origin, is showing her understanding and her belief that Yahweh is not contained to Judah. He's not contained to Israel. He is God over everything and everywhere all the time, and he can do whatever he wants, right? And so she, he's, she's praying this blessing over these ladies, and she's sending them back, and then she prays specifically for the, her, the kindness that they have shown to her to be returned to them by God. And the word there for kindness, it's the Hebrew word has said. And that Hebrew word has said is, it literally means the totality of all of God's positive attributes. It's a very, very important word in the Bible, okay? It's the totality of God's positive attributes like his <clears throat> love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his patience. So he, she, she's basically praying that God would just lavish on them all of the good things that he has for his people and for those who are with him. And then she also goes on to pray not only for kindness for this said, but she prays for them to be able to be remarried, right? She says, go find peace in the homes of your husbands. In other words, go, you're young, you can remarry, you still have hope for a family and for children. And like, and that was a really big deal in this time, in this culture. Like that was the main thing that, that women desired was like to have a home and a family and children. Like that was a big, big deal. He's, she's like, you're still young. You still have a chance for that. Like go back to your families. Let them find you new husbands and, and have a life for yourself. And she's praying these things and she's praying that God would bless them with these things. And, and what's interesting to me is this. Despite everything that has happened to Naomi, all the bad stuff, all the suffering, all the pain, she still believes that God is sovereign that he can do whatever he wants, and that he's still good, that he can and will do good to those who, who are following after him. And so she like blesses you and she prays, and, and, but then skip down to verse 13 with me for just a second here. And we're gonna come more, get into more of this later, but I just want you to see the belief here in her. Look at 13b. It says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You see, the other thing that she understands, or she believes at least, about God is this, 
that despite the fact that it was Elimelech's decision to leave Bethlehem and to go to Moab and to run from God, despite that was his decision, she still sees all the suffering that ensued from that as under the sovereign hand of God. That ultimately it still passed through his understanding, his hand. He allowed it. It's him who is allowing her to suffer and go through this stuff. Right? That he's the one ultimately responsible for allowing these things. And so in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, Naomi still chooses to believe in God, even though she doesn't understand why he's doing what he's doing. She doesn't understand the plan. She doesn't see it. She maybe probably doesn't even like it. <laughs> but she doesn't lose her belief, right? She doesn't, be- she doesn't lose that. I remember <clears throat> whenever we were um, newlyweds, my wife and I, um, we, we, we said, all right, we're going we're gonna to be on the five-year plan, is what we called it. And so we said, we're going to wait five years before we start trying to have children. Like, we want to just have some time, just the two of us, and build a relationship and get ourselves in, in, on foundation. So, so we waited five years, and, which always, you know, doesn't go well with, like, hopeful grandparents, right? Um, and so, but we said five years. So after five years, we finally decided, okay, we're going to start this thing. And so we started trying to have children. And, and when we did that, we started running into some complications, and it, we had some problems getting pregnant, and it took several months. We had to go through some tests and some procedures. And, and so finally, we were able to get pregnant, and, and, and Courtney got pregnant, and, and it was, things were going great. And then I was away on a business trip one week, and um, I got a call later in the week from my crying wife saying that she had lost the baby and that the miscarriage had occurred. And, and I remember in that, it was just so, such a surreal moment, and kind of, like just... When all, you, don't, you have all these different emotions just flooding your heart and flooding your soul. And I, I just wanted nothing more than to be back in St. Louis, be with my wife, and help walk through that. So I finished up as quick as I could the next day with our business, my business stuff, and then I got in the car and drove home like six hours and, and just kind of spent that weekend and just tried to work through that together. And, and I remember just looking at that and, and going, you know, God, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't like it. It hurts. But in the midst of that, even though we were honest with God about how we felt, we didn't doubt that God was there. We didn't doubt that God was true, that he was good. Now, some things had happened earlier in our marriage where there was a couple times I did doubt a little bit. But he had grown me in that to the point here where it was never a doubt of what he was there. Yes, I questioned the plan. Why are you doing this? Why is this happening to us? You know, like, what does this all mean? But in the midst of that, it did show us what we truly believed about God. That he was sovereign, that he was good, and that we could trust him. And we don't understand why that happened, but it did. And God moved us through that and has brought us off on the other side now. And I think that's a lot of where we see Naomi and and even Ruth and Orpah at right now in this story. Is they don't quite understand it all, but but Naomi still has this firm belief in the Lord. And so I would sum it up like this. Beliefs are taken up in season, but tested in suffering. Our beliefs tend to be taken up in the seasons of our life. As we just walk through normal, everyday life and we're progressing through life, we start to pick up these things that we believe and we hold true and we draw in, and that's great. But then we really know what we believe when it gets tested in the midst of suffering, when it's finally put to the test we get to see, is this going to stand true? Is this, are we going to hold on to this in the midst of suffering? And so in suffering, God shows me what I, what I truly believe. 
Second thing, let's go to verse 8. A little bit of review here, but it says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest with each of you uh, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the, Lord's hand, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Second thing I want you to see here tonight is this. In suffering, God shows me what I truly love. The second thing we see is that in suffering, God shows me what I truly love, what I value, what I put stock in. For here, you know, Naomi is telling her daughters, go, return. Like she, and she's doing this not because she's trying to be mean in any way. She really believes that's what's best for them. Like she's treating them as daughters. Like she wants what she thinks is best for them. And this is what she believes is best is like go back and find a husband and have a family. And, and obviously they, they loved, the three of these ladies, they loved each other very, very much. They'd been through 10 plus years of, of struggle as a family. And so it says that they lifted up their voices and they wept together. And like it, this is hard. This is a hard decision for all of them. But she says, return to, to your people. And, and they say, no, we want to go with you. We love you, Naomi. We're, we're faithful to you. We want to be with you. Like, we don't want, even if it's to a foreign people, even if it's to a foreign land, we want to go with you. And Naomi's not settling with that. So she goes back at him again. And she's like, no. And this is where she finally uses that word. She says, return my daughters. Right? You, you feel the sincerity in that? Right? These, I mean, these are daughters-in-law to her at best. The husbands are dead. But she uses that word daughters. It's, it's a plea of love. It's that sacrificial love that she's saying, no, not what's best for me. I would love to have your companionship. I would love to have you with me. But that's not what's best for you. I think you should go back. Naomi has no hope for a husband at this point. At her age, she's like, nobody's going to marry me. Like, this thing's over. Like, and I don't want you to have to live the life I'm going to have to live as a widow, destitute, without anything, living off the care of others. And then after the whole speech, it says, and this is such a key statement right here. It says, Orpah kissed her, but Ruth clung to her. So we see two opposite responses here. For Orpah, who's ironically, her name means stubborn. Don't you love it when your parents name you stubborn? Um, but so Orpah, she, she loves Naomi. She really does. We've already seen that. But in this moment, we see that although she loves Naomi, she loves her family and her homeland and her other gods more. Because she's going to kiss her mother-in-law and then return to Moab. Okay? And you know, not saying fault on either side. It's just reality of what it is. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth's name means friendship, right? You see that throughout this entire book. And it says that she, she loves Naomi so much that she's willing to, to forego all of that. She loves Naomi. She loves her new family. She loves her new God. And nobody's going to turn her away from that. She is like all in. She loves her family of faith 
more than she loves her family of origin. And I know some of you in this room, because I've had conversations with you, you, you know exactly what that's like. Because you're a first-generation Christian, and, and, and your whole family thinks you're absolutely bonkers for doing this whole Christian church thing, right? They're like, what is going on? Like, you're not the same anymore. You come home for holidays, and things are all weird, and we can't figure this thing. Like, and it's hard. You, you love them, but it's hard to, to connect with them in a loving relationship because you're on opposite sides of faith. And so you, hopefully you turn and you find solace and you find that loving relationship in, in the new family of God that you have been given with your faith in Christ. And that's what Ruth is doing here. She's clinging to Naomi because Naomi is her one connection at this point to the people of God, to the family of God, because she knows she can't go back to where she came from. There's nothing left for her there. She has found a new faith, a new God, a new family, and she's going to cling to that with everything she has. As a pastor, I've been a pastor now for several years, and just as part of the job, I, I'm around people a lot in their last days, in their final moments, in suffering, in grief, in death, wakes, and funerals, and bedsides, and and what I've, what I've seen and come to understand is that it's in those times of suffering that things really show for what they are. It's, it's okay, so who, who do people turn to when they really need that support and comfort when they've lost a loved one? Who is it that actually comes and shows up and stays around when everybody else has already went home? Right? Who, who, what do people cling to? Who do they call on the nights when they just can't handle it anymore? It shows who they really love and who really loves them. It shows what, who they really stand by and who, who stands by them when things get tough. Maybe you've seen that in your own life. Maybe you've experienced that through your own family, through your own friends. Because it's one thing to say, I love you, it's a completely different thing to show I love you, right? I'll say it like this. You know real love not by what is said, but by what is done. You know real love not by what is said, but by what is done. We see that in Christ, right? We see that in our own lives when suffering comes. We see that here with Ruth and Naomi. <clears throat> and again, if I was to summarize this, this little section, I would say it this way. Love is professed in sentiment, but proven in suffering. Love is professed in sentiment, but proven in suffering. We use the word love a lot in our culture, don't we? Sometimes too haphazardly, I believe. It's easy to say you love. But it's proven when suffering comes and they really need you. When hard times come. Which is what we see here with Ruth. So, in suffering, God shows me what I believe, who I love. And then lastly, look at verses 15 through 22. And she said, this is Naomi... See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Like, she's not giving up. Like, she's still pressing on Ruth. Like, go back. Seriously, like, it's okay. 
But Ruth said, and then you, we have here, in, starting in verse 16, perhaps one of the greatest professions of, of fortitude and faith in all of the Old Testament for sure, maybe the entire Bible in some ways, as Ruth goes into her little speech here. And she says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined, you think, um, to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The last thing I want you to see here is this. In suffering, God shows me who I truly am. In suffering, this is probably the most important thing of the entire passage tonight. In suffering, God shows me who I truly am. Like he gets to the heart of the matter. So again, Naomi pushes on her one more time. Go back to your people. And oddly enough, she says, go back to your people and go back to your gods. Which is kind of a weird thing, right? Because she just like had this whole prayer, like this beautiful prayer of Yah- to Yahweh to oversee them and to bless them, even to Moab. Yet now she's talking about other gods that like they actually exist. And, and I think what we're seeing here is this. Sometimes when you're just like, like head deep in suffering, we just get confused sometimes, right? Like sometimes when you're so thick in it that you can't see straight, sometimes we get a little confused about what we believe and, and what we think and, and what we love and what we cherish and what we... And so... I think she's just a little cloudy in her suffering here, but it doesn't, it doesn't phase Ruth at all, right? <laughs> Ruth goes right into her thing. And again, look at her declaration here. So it's a couple different pieces. First of all, she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, I'm going to be with you no matter what, right? It's this pledge of loyalty. Like, I am with you. I am with your people. I am with your God. Like, I am in all the way. And she says, your people will be my people. In other words, I have a new family now. I don't need that family. This is now my family, Right? It's, it's, she's got a new identity in the people of God. And most of all, she says, your God will be my God. She's like, I'm done with Chemosh, all right? Yahweh, all the way, that's who I'm with, like, that's it, okay? She is 100% in genuine faith. And she says, where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I'll be buried. In other words, I'm in this till the end. Like, I'm not just going until you kick it, and then I'm going to go back to Moab and, and pick back up where I left off. Like, I'm, this is it for me for the rest of my life. Like, this is where I'm at. I'm in. I'm committed. And then most of all, she calls on the Lord as her witness, right? She's like, if I don't, may the Lord do worse to me. She's like, there's no turning back. What a great example. What a great testimony to us as Christians of what it means to really pledge everything in our lives to the Lord. 
But most of all, what strikes me is this is a really bold, bold, bold move for Ruth. Up, up, up to this point in, in, in biblical history, Yahweh was the God of Israel. He wasn't the God of anybody else, right? Up to this point, there's been no major like people. You have three people in the entire Old Testament, three Gentiles in the entire Old Testament that seem to come to faith in Yahweh. And Rahab, Ruth, and Naaman. That's it. Like, this is a huge, bold step for her to leave her people, to leave her God, to leave everything she knows, to go in pursuit of this new God that she's only seen, let's just be honest, through a pretty dim lens of faith, right? Like her ex- entire exposure to Yahweh has been through Elimelech, or maybe not even him, I don't know if she met him or not, but Malon, Kilion, and Naomi, which haven't been the greatest lights for, for the Lord at this point. And yet she is all in. Why? Because God changes everything. When you finally encounter the true God of the universe, when you finally encounter for us Jesus Christ, and you you understand what that means, that relationship is, everything changes. There's no going back. There's nothing left there that even looks appealing. Right? And so she's like, I... I can't go back there. This is all I've got. This is where I'm at. And so she gets all in. And so Naomi they, and her, they finally make it back to Bethlehem, right? And this is, this is kind of interesting here. They finally make it back, and it says the city is stirred. Okay? All right, so let's just think about this for a second here. All right, so you have the city, and then around it you have all the fields, right? So in the city, you have, well, in the fields, let's start there. In the fields, you have all the men out Harvesting, because they said it's at the beginning of harvest season, right? Did you catch that at the end? So all the men are out working, they're harvesting, they're bringing in. So who's in the city? All the women are in the city doing their duties, okay? And here comes Naomi and Ruth, and they come walking in, and all of a sudden, the phone lines lit up, right? Like, look, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? Like, it's just like the city is just like buzzing. Like, is this really her? And, and why are they asking, is this Naomi? Because it's been several years, and it's been several hard years. And I'm guessing that her face, her body, her appearance has probably aged quite a bit through the stress of losing a husband, two sons, and a foreign country, right? And so she probably doesn't even quite look like herself anymore. I've had this, I've talked to several people about this before. Have you guys ever noticed... Have you ever looked at a picture of, of one of the men um, right before they enter the office of president? And then one of the pictures of them, like, right after they come out? And how different those pictures look? How much they look like they've aged? Because and, and, that job's hard. That job's hard, right? Like, that's a heavy, heavy weight. I mean, I don't care whether you like who's in office now or later. Or, it doesn't matter. The office is a heavy, heavy weight to bear. It's stressful. That's kind of like what's happened to Naomi here. She's been through a 10 plus stressful years and, and she's aged a little bit. And so they're like, is that her? I'm pretty sure that's her. That, I think that's her. But they're not, they're still trying, like they're trying to figure it out. And so, but Naomi hears it, right? Like she hears all the little going around and she's like, don't, don't, no, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Don't call me Pleasant. I was pleasant. I left pleasant. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm bitter. 
Do you hear the brutal honesty in that? Like she's being completely authentic, completely transparent. She's like, I left with everything. I was full and I've come back empty. Let's just call it like it is, right? I'm not who I was anymore. God has dealt bitterly with me, she says. And this is her mindset, whether it's true or not, this is her mind, this is her heart, this is the state she's in at this point in the story. Are you with me? And so she just lays it out there. And what we see here is Naomi's identity has become shaken, right? But even through that shaken identity of bitterness and hurt, she still remains faithful to the Lord. She still says, she still says, it's Yahweh who's done that. Like she still has her faith in who he is and she's still just walking in brutal honesty before him. She's still going back to him. She's still going back to Bethlehem. There's something for us to learn in that. Sometimes I think when we're trying to follow the Lord, we, we get worried that he can't handle our emotions. That when hard things come and we get a little upset and, we get, and we're human, right? And we get angry and we get sideways that like, we can't let anybody know. We can't like, especially can't let God know. Because then like, what's going you know, like, And so we try to hide it and we try to disguise it. And we put the mask on and we don't want anybody to know. Because what, what will people think and say? And what will God say? And like, God's a big boy. He can handle it. Right? I think he would appreciate us to be more like Naomi here and just be brutally honest with, this is where I'm at, this is where my heart's at, and let him work with that. See, when suffering comes, our true colors show. It just shows. It just shows who we are. When suffering comes in our life, our true colors come out whether we like it or not, and we get to see who we are, and if we're authentic and transparent like Ruth or like Naomi is, everyone around us gets to see who we are for good and for bad. Here, we see two sides of that coin. Suffering has come to both Naomi and Ruth, right? And for Ruth, it has shown her to be a woman of faith and integrity and, and commitment, and like it has brought the best out in Ruth, and it's brought not such the best out in Naomi. And it's showing her to be struggling and hurting and bitter and just like trying to figure this whole thing out. It reveals who we really are. When we got married, we went on a honeymoon to Gatlinburg. And uh, <laughs> you can't laugh before I tell the story. Like that ruins the whole story. Um, so we go on this honeymoon to Gatlinburg. We got this cabin like up in the woods, right? And so, you know, it's like this long winding road to kind of get up to it and like a lane and a half, you know, like where you got to kind of like barely cross two cars on it. And so we've been out to dinner one night and doing some stuff and we were headed back to the, the cabin and, and Courtney said, you know, she's like, I really got to pee. And I was like, okay. And so, and so, you know, I'm new husband, like wanting to have some fun. And so I'm swerving the car around and like, you know, just messing with her real bad. And so we're going up this road. And so I'm doing all this crazy stuff with the car and we come around this corner and there's another car coming. And so I like, you know, swerve over into our side of the road trying to make sure we don't hit this car. Well, in the midst of doing so, our right front tire uh, slips off the edge of the road and there's no shoulder, no nothing, just like this huge ditch. And so the car just goes like right into this ditch, like literally coming like that from a, a power line pole. I mean, like, and so by the time the car stops, 
I've lost my mind. And so I'm like beating the steering wheel and cussing and just like, I mean, just like going off and it, like things I didn't even know I knew how to say. And they're just like flying out. And, and I finally get to the end of that. And I look over and Courtney's looking at me like, what in the world just happened? Who are you? Who did I marry? Like, I don't know this man. And, and so I like fling the door open and I try to get out and see what's wrong, you know, what's up with the car. And I'm going to have to call a tow truck. And I have no cell service because we're halfway up this stupid mountain in the middle of nowhere. So I have to like hike my way out like a, like a mile and a half back to the main road and finally get my cell phone to work. And I call. And meanwhile, my, my, my new wife, who I love dearly, is back in the car having to pee. And I can't like go anywhere. And I've just left her there a mile and a half back. It's just a bad, bad day, right? In that moment, though, it showed us both some things. It showed me that there were some things inside of me that I thought I had dealt with a long time ago that obviously I hadn't. And it showed her that, and showed both of us, that when you step into a marriage, you're marrying another human who has a wicked heart, and sometimes that heart shows up, right? And so all of a sudden, and not that that is like any degree of suffering, anything close to anything else we've talked about tonight, but even in the smallest stuff, sometimes God can use that to expose who we really are. Are you with me? And when he does that, the key is this. When God finally shows up and shows me who I am in those moments, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to take that in and learn from that and allow him to grow you and change you past that? Or are you going to try to cover it up and just act like nothing happened and move on with the mask? And so... As we're coming here to the end of our passage, I I would sum it up like this. Identity is rooted in the soul, but revealed in suffering. Our identity is rooted in our soul. It's rooted in who we are at our deepest level, who we are in in connection with who God's made us to be. But that same identity ultimately is revealed to us and to others in the midst of suffering. And so as kind of a closing tonight, I want you to reflect on the story. And I want to ask you this, which character are you? I'm going to walk you through them because some of them are from last week and some of them are from this week. But which character are you in this story if you really get honest about who you are at the heart level? Are you a Limelech? Are you that self-sufficient leader that doesn't need to consult God and doesn't need anybody's input? You're going to make the decision. You're going to move forward. You're going to, you're going to strive ahead with your own path. And you know, everybody else just has to get on board and do whatever, whatever it is that you want to do. Or maybe you're Malon and Kilion, the sons, right? Just products of generational sin. You know, they didn't choose to go to Moab. They didn't choose that life. Elimelech chose that for them. But once they were there, they just kind of kept going in it. And they just kept repeating the sin of their father. And they just kept walking and kept the status quo. And maybe some of you are there, you're like, you know what, Micah? If you only knew the life I grew up in, if you even knew the family I came out of, like it's a miracle I'm even like standing and sitting here today, right? I get that. But as we learned last week, No matter what you were brought up in, that generational sin doesn't have to continue in your life. Repentance breaks generational sin. And you don't have to be that. Or maybe you're the third one here. Maybe you're Naomi. Maybe you're that, you are a Christian. You are a follower of Christ. You do believe. 
Your belief is strong, but your heart is hurting, and you're bitter, and you're broken. And maybe you're honest about it, maybe you're not. But you're struggling through some stuff right now, and, and you want to believe, and, and you want to but you just don't understand what God's doing and it's really hard to see through all the cloudiness of it all. And you're trying to press into that and God's good for that. Press in, be honest. Let him come and, and work on your heart. Or maybe you're Ruth, right? Hopefully some of it, we have some Ruths in here. It's that, it's that vibrant maybe new Christian that's hopeful and faithful and even in the midst of suffering and the hard stuff, like you are pushing, like you're believing God for something big and that he is, and you're committed and you're, you're all in. Even when the hard stuff comes, even when you don't understand it. Or maybe, maybe worst of all, maybe you're an Orpah. The one who looked like they had genuine faith but when the going got tough, they left. They went back. It was false. It was false Christianity. They, when suffering comes, you're, you're just looking for any port in the storm, right? Like you're just like, what, wherever's the easiest way to get out of this, I'm, I'm on that. You show up to church. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you pray. But in the end of the day, you know it's just not real. It's not genuine. Because when suffering comes, God's not the one you turn to. God's not the one you trust. And so you know it's not real. So which of these characters are you? When suffering shows up in your life, maybe some of you are going through suffering right now. Maybe you have in the past and you can reflect on that. Maybe it's still coming for you down the road and that's okay too. But the reason God brings suffering into our life is so he can show us who we are and lead us to be who he wants us to be, right? Like if we allow suffering to come and we see who we are and we just leave it there, we've wasted it. And, and one thing I've seen throughout my life is when, when God's trying to show me something and teach me something and I kind of ignore it, it's coming back again, and so I'm just, you're just racking up more suffering for yourself down the road if you're not going to respond to it when he brings it the first time. And so which one of these are you so that you can actually respond and let God move you past that and through that and closer to Christ? Because suffering reveals the real me and my real need. The real me, who I am, my identity, and my real need for God to change me and take me past that. So I want to pray now. I'm just going to pray with you and over you as you've been reflecting over this story, these people suffering in your life. Which character are you? I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would just speak to your heart. And if there's someone here tonight and, and you are in that last boat of Orpah and you're like, man, I really want genuine faith. This is the time to deal with that. You can pray. You could ask God for that right now. And I'll be around afterwards and I'll be happy to talk with you about it if you have questions. But most of all, I want all of us to kind of press in right now to the Holy Spirit and just allow him to work in our hearts and say, hey, all right, God, what in my life? Where am I at? Which person am I? How do I need to change to be more like Christ? And how can you help me with that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word, as always. Thank you, Lord, for the story. We thank you, Lord, for the faithful witness of Ruth and, Lord, and just the, 
the great uh, inspiration that she is to us, Lord, as we're looking to follow you and to, and to be with you and, and to be faithful and loyal as she is. But Father, right now, I just pray that you would, <clears throat> through your Holy Spirit, Lord, Lord, impress upon each of our hearts, speak to us now, Lord. Show us, Lord, what it is about us, who we truly are, that needs to change. Lord, what part of us do you want to work on next? What part of us, Lord, do you want to, to shape and, and, and reveal to us? And Lord, as we used to often pray in our younger years as a couple, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to learn through wisdom rather than experience. Lord, help us glean from the wisdom of your word, from the wisdom of others, and learn those lessons before we have to go through the suffering experiences and learn them that way. But most of all, Lord, take us to that next step, whatever it takes. Give us the courage, the strength, the faith to keep our eyes on you and to keep walking towards you even in the midst of the hard stuff and allow you to change us and shape us into who you're calling us to be. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.